A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Hello, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by David and Esther Shurin, Lezecher Nishmas Chana Bas Shlomo, Mrs. Ann Shatner, whose yard site is today the 12th of Adar. And this episode is going to explore a little bit about the Haskalah movement, some of the reality, some of the myths, some of the misconceptions, a little bit of an overview. But before we get to that, I want to mention that just uh, the other day I posted a an episode in honor of Purim. Um, I had a special guest, Moish Francesa, for some great and exciting Jewish History Purim Entertainment, and he was great. So thank you, Maish Francesa, for joining me for that. And if you didn't listen to it yet, you might want to, to enhance your uh, happiness during this uh, time of year. Um, so, and also, in this week's Mishpacha magazine, there's uh, Davi Safir and I, who I write the For the Record column together with. We've put together a trivia contest of Jewish History Trivia, um, in the Mishpacha magazine this week, in honor of Purim, and there's prizes for those who do well in the trivia, so go on to the, uh, the website, the mishpacha.com uh, uh, magazine's website, and fill that out and do the trivia and uh, see how well you do. Many took it already, and it's a fun, it's a bit challenging, uh, gotten a lot of feedback already. You'll enjoy it, though, even if it's challenging, even if some of the Questions are a little bit difficult. We also saw from the feedback that there's a lot of kvetching, a lot of kvetching. But I have kids, so I can handle some kvetching. I know how to do that. And uh, we were thinking, and the prizes to give out for those who uh, scored well, we're thinking of maybe making, for the record, Jewish history uh, masks made with logos as one of the prizes, since mask wearing is a big thing now and brand name masks are becoming a thing. But many of our readers and listeners reside in mainstream religious enclaves, so masks would not be the most useful gift. So uh, we, we're going to have better uh, prizes instead. Um, again, before I get to the topic of the Haskalah, there are some there's some feedback from recent episodes from Bayan. We had on the Hasidic dynasty of Bayan recently, also on the Purim episode with Moish Francesa that I just mentioned. So... I'll uh, I'll just just read one or two letters. 
I once saw a saying, I don't recall currently where I saw it, that a historian tells you what happened, and a historical novelist tells you what that experience felt like. When the recent episode on Bayan, I did a, a overview of the Bayan Hasidic dynasty, and then someone sent such a great letter that enabled me, and perhaps you as well, when I read it, to actually feel a little bit what it must have felt like. So it was really really uh, brought you in there. So the letter writer is discussing his visits to the Lower East Side. Um, doesn't seem like that long ago either. Uh, so so here it goes. They, they, he's discussing his, his visits and his hosts on the uh, Lower East Side. Here it goes. They lived on Grand Street, and while I would usually daven at the Bialystoker Shul most mornings, I would sometimes meet up with the Chabad Shliach to daven with him at the Bianer Cloys at 247 East Broadway. Such friendly people there. It was like stepping back in time. Up the steps from the street through a big old wooden door on the right and into the shul that was inside a fairly narrow long room. Beyond that room was a small bunch of other rooms, a stove, a refrigerator, but not too many people. There was always a minion, though, because someone was always walking past the front door and could be schlepped in to be the ninth or the tenth man. Memories of Tubishvat with slices of fruit to eat after Shachris and a very dusty bottle of Shlivovitz to drink a few Lechayims. I met an interesting man there who told me that he had come to England on one of the kinder transports and had eventually studied at Gates Head Yeshiva after the war and then had moved to New York City where he joined the Bayana Shtibel and had never left. I wanted to take a photo of him, but someone else in the room told me not to. The reason, the current Bayana Rebbe still sometimes comes to meet people on his visits to the United States in that room that gives the room Kedusha, so it would be disrespectful if I took a picture in there. So it's uh, it a very cute, uh, just to you know give a little bit about inside the Bianer Stiebel uh, on the Lower East Side. I also liked it that it was 247 East Broadway, so it's a Stiebel that's 24-7. Um, either way, so there's another, uh, excuse me, uh, some feedback from the Purim episode with with uh, Maish Francesa, and here it goes. My ears hurt. You said Tells had many incarcerations and reincarcerations. That is great if you feel that Tells was a pipeline to Rikers Island, Sing Sing, or Alcatraz. You probably meant to say incarnation and reincarnation, which would be loosely translated as a new life or a new version. Thank you very much, and that's definitely true. I definitely meant to say incarnation and reincarnation, and if I misspoke, uh, then I apologize. Um, so now we get to finally to the story a little, a little bit of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment of the 19th century. It starts really in the 18th century. We'll get to that, the different time periods. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of misconception about the Haskalah movement, and I'll be honest, I'm still confused, and perhaps we'll try to clarify some of these things together what it was, when it was, where it was, what it did, who were its personalities, why is it even called a movement, what was its impact, and many, many, many more issues need to be clarified about this somewhat ambiguous term that we often throw around and grow up with and uh, use in all types of contexts. So this is hopefully going to be the first of many such episodes. It's something that, unfortunately, we have not covered enough in uh, Jewish History Soundbites yet, and I hope to change that and explore the different aspects of the Haskalah as a movement in Jewish history. And now, in this first uh, opening episode, it'll just be a brief overview. I want to ask some questions 
um, to, you know, to uh, open up the topic and to cause us all to try to think about it more, question some of the myths and misconceptions, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to fully explore some of these uh, angles in the future more in depth. So if any of these topics or any any other topic in general, not just Haskalah, anything in Jewish history or something specifically that we're going to speak about today, if any of that piques your interest, then please be in touch with me about sponsorships for the podcast, uh, for an episode of the podcast, or for lectures uh, we, for your group. I've been doing uh, some of that more recently, also Zoom lectures and other things like that to uh, various different groups, and that's always fun as well, so you can be in touch with me about that. I want to open up with a, a story that um, se- several years ago, I don't remember how long ago, probably about uh, three, four, five years ago, something like that, I was sent uh, by Yad Vashem, uh, where I worked uh, until, and hopefully will, will work again uh, when when it finally reopens, but uh, at the time, and uh, they sent me to give a, deliver a lecture, a Jewish history lecture on an army base um, about about interwar Poland, and uh, the soldiers were um, were religious soldiers, Haredi soldiers, and and the topic was interwar Polish Jewish life. It was part of they were part of an army educational uh, program during basic training, and part of the education was Jewish history. So they had a series of lectures. So I, I delivered a couple of the lectures there. And I showed um, I showed them, displayed a street scene from the Jewish quarter, Jewish neighborhood uh, of Warsaw in Warsaw uh, in the 1930s. And I asked them to describe what they see. Now, Warsaw, the center of Poland, there's a huge diversity of Jews living in Warsaw at the time, and for the most part, it's the secular Jews. You know, it's about a, about a, about a third of of uh, Jews at the time in Poland were religious Jews. So. You know, you see all kinds, and and uh, and I and these are religious uh, soldiers in the state of Israel, and in the in the two thousand seventeen, sixteen, whatever it was, and um, one of them says, "I asked them, what do you see? What do you describe? What can you see?" So um, one of them said, "Well, it looks like there's a lot of maskilim, and on the street." So I said, what do you mean? I said, look, they, you know, not all of them look exactly like a Gerach strolling to his shtibel. So, you know, n- needless to say, there were no maskilim in the streets of Warsaw in the 1930s because the Haskalah as a movement ended, uh, you know, over half a century earlier, in, in pretty much in 1881. Um, again, that's arguable, um, and that's part of the debate about did it end, when did it end, and whatever. But the fact that a person was a secular Jew in the streets of a non-religious, non-observant, however you want to phrase it, the PC way to phrase it, it does not make one a maskil or part of the Haskalah. And uh, you want to call any non-observant Jew or any secular Jew a maskil or Haskalah, that's fine. I mean, there's not that there's anything wrong with that. You... you uh, a person's personal preference, the way he wants to be called, that's that's fine, and not, not nothing wrong with that. Uh, but but if we want to talk about in historically about where and when were they, when and when uh, were the were the Haskalah? So, in a certain to a certain extent, it starts in uh, the Jewish Jewish Enlightenment. The Jewish Haskalah starts in Germany in the 18th century, and this is something. Uh, 
I slightly discussed a long, long time ago, and I had a little bit of an episode about Moses Mendelssohn and the early Jewish Enlightenment in Germany. So there was a couple of generations where there was a form of the Haskalah in Germany, and then they created the idea of studying Judaism in a scientific way, and Jewish history, and Jewish studies, um, and the Wissenschaft, uh, whatever it was, uh, the whole German uh, term uh, for Jewish studies, of uh, German Jewish students at the, uh, the, at the uh, beginning of the 19th century. It only lasted a couple of generations in Germany. It uh, did not last that long, because in Germany, the, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, uh, very quickly became other forms. It, 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 it developed, it evolved into other forms. There was the German Reform uh, Judaism, uh, that became a movement that became very popular. And then also assimilation and, uh, and, even, and even conversion, even complete assimilation, um, which took place by uh, many uh, German Jews in the 19th century. To get ahead, to uh, you know, become fully absorbed into German life, where the Haskalah really took off was when it shifted south first into Galicia, into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. From Germany, it went south into uh, Austria-Hungary, into the area of Galicia, and in the early 1800s, that's where the Haskalah developed. We know even in the earliest, earliest forms, the Haskalah. Was there was the you know that Rav, Rav, Rav Nachman of Breslov and later his student Rav Nassan Sternhertz, uh, Rav Nassan of Breslov, uh, Rav Nassan of Nemerov, excuse me, he's buried in Breslov. Um, see he um, see he they both uh, dealt with the maskile uman, the maskilim in uman, and then uh, and of course uh, later on in different parts of Galicia the uh, the Haskalah was quite uh, popular, and that's where it flourished. Uh, in in the early 1800s, and then it shifted north, and it became and it was the Russian Haskalah, the Russian Jewry. Not only north, it, was, it went all over the Russian Empire. Odessa, which is way south, uh, became a center of the Haskalah movement, and Saint Petersburg, the capital of the Russian Empire, Vilna became a center of the Haskalah. Kovna also, to a lesser extent, Warsaw out in Poland all different areas of the Russian Empire, and that remains throughout most of the 1800s until the Haskalah as a movement kind of ends, not a decisive uh, end, uh, as, as, as we understand it better today, but it kind of ends in around 1880, 1881, when the pogroms begin and the, the, the whole agenda changes. The whole Jewish story in Russia changes and everyone begins to question what's really going on. Are we really going to make it into Russian society? Look what's happening. There's the pogroms, there's the May laws, there's now this massive emigration going, everyone's leaving, and the isms start, socialism and, and, and nationalism and later Zionism, and the Haskalah kind of disappears and it becomes all kinds of uh, other things. So that's, that's, where it, that's where it is from time to time. And when did it begin? Like I said, in Germany in the 18th century for a short time, and then mainly it's in Eastern Europe in the 19th century. Um, but is that really when it began? Perhaps it was earlier. We see many expressions of what we recognize as certain masculic tendencies, what we're going to call 
Maskilic tendencies in 19th century Russia, we see very similar things cropping up way, way earlier in a different part of the world. In England, in Holland, in, in parts of Western Europe, and these are primarily the descendants of the Spanish and Portuguese exiles, their communities in the 17th century, 150 years earlier, which is actually during the time of the European Enlightenment, um, you see those communities have what we're going to call masculic tendencies, Haskala, Enlightenment, uh, exposure to the outside world, language, uh, culture, uh, knowledge, literature, all the things that we're going to describe in the Haskala of the 19th century in Eastern Europe, we already see in these earlier communities in which is in, in the 17th century, different century, different country, different type of community altogether. Um, so is that is that Jewish enlightenment? Is that Jewish Haskalah? No one ever calls it that, but recent scholarship wants to change the narrative. Maybe the Haskalah is already much earlier, or maybe we have to redefine uh, everything. And how about the end? That's the, that's the question on the beginning. But how, how did it end? We have a very similar question. Did, did it end, like I said, in... 1881, when the programs began in in, uh, in Russia, or was nationalism and secularism and socialism and all the other isms of the end of the 19th century in, in Russian Jewry, was that the result of the Haskalah and couldn't we see it as a continuation of the same or similar value systems? Many will say yes, others will say no. And the biggest question of all is that we very often call it a movement in Hebrew and all the Hebrew literature, it's called the Tnu'ah, the Tnu'as Haskala, the movement. Was it a movement? And if it was, what made it a movement? What defines something as a movement? Was there a agenda, a platform, a cohesive identity that the Haskala had? And was it a group of individuals? Was it a mass movement? Were there masses? Did they have a lot of adherence to this movement? And there's really a lot of dispute among scholars today, and it continues. What exactly is the Haskalah, or what was it? Uh, is the Haskalah the Jewish Enlightenment? Is it just the Jewish version or the Jewish translation of the European Enlightenment? Well, what was the European Enlightenment? It was a set of ideas and philosophies which became popular in European intellectual circles and it had an influence on politics and on culture and on education and literature in the 18th century, especially around the American and French revolutions. So is, is the Jewish Haskalah just a, 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 an expression of what was going on in Europe? So there's different approaches. I'll just give you an example of one, one dispute in, 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 in the scholarly world. There's the Shmuel Feiner approach to the Haskalah, and he's one of the greatest uh, scholars of the Haskalah, that everything was the Haskalah. In Eastern Europe, everything, any, anything that had to do with modernity was part of the Haskalah. There's no clear definition. There's no clear and unified platform. Anything new, anything modern in the 19th century in Eastern Europe was part of the Haskalah program, and that's because the Maskilim themselves defined it in so many different ways. They polemicized against each other about what is the true Haskalah and the false Haskalah. And they would accuse each other of not having genuine or authentic Haskalah and they're having false and, and not the correct approach. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. And then it's saying, yes, this is, this is the Jewish version of the European Enlightenment to a certain extent. 
More recently, another prestigious scholar, Olga Litvak, she says, no, nothing has scala. There's nothing to do with the European Enlightenment. It's, it can't be. It's off by a full century. It came over a hundred years later, and it's in the wrong place. It's in Eastern Europe, and the political reality and the and the governments and the rea- the the cultural reality in Eastern Europe had nothing to do with the European Enlightenment. It was not even influenced, but was very limited. It's influenced by it. Um, it's it, it's it's a the Haskalah in Eastern Europe is a group of Jewish intellectuals, which leads to certain Jewish identity in the modern era, certain political attitudes, certain attitudes vis-a-vis the state, vis-a-vis the state. There is this struggle for emancipation because in Eastern Europe they do not yet achieve emancipation, only in Austro-Hungarian Empire, but not in Russia. There is cultural ideas, but it has nothing to do with the philosophy of the European Enlightenment. And it leads directly into Jewish nationalism. These ideas go right into Jewish nationalism, so we can't separate the Jewish nationalism at the end of the 19th century from the Haskalah of the mid-19th century. And that's her claim. So there you have it. There's there's two ways of looking at it. And uh, and uh, and who's right? Maybe it's a combination of both. What definitely is the real one of the realities. What we could describe as one of the primary unifying characteristics of the entire Haskalah movement from beginning to end, no matter where they were, was that they used and utilized the written word as their main and primary uh, uh, tool to further their agenda, whatever their agenda was. And that was through the mechanism of newspapers. And many of these things are very modern, especially for traditional Jewish life in the 19th century, to utilize the media, the newspapers, the first newspapers, books, novels, science, translations of literature uh, that was available in the general society, and they write it in all different, in several different languages. There's Yiddish Haskalah literature. There's Hebrew. There's written in German in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Russian in the Russian Empire. And they are they writing in all different genres of literature. There's satire, poetry, pamphlets, articles. And uh, the question is, how widespread was it? Was it a bestseller? Did they when they sold it, they printed thousands of copies, or was it? Uh, limited in its scope, and it only got to several hundred people. Or it's hard to know. It's hard to measure the scope and the influence of of these different books and works uh, um, of 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 different uh, 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 masculic, uh authors. But it's really a huge topic. The literature is the huge topic. You have the Hebrew and Yiddish press, which first the Hebrew press and then later the Yiddish press that develops over the nineteenth century. For instance, you have the most famous newspaper of the 19th century and one of the most famous Jewish newspapers of all time, the Hamelitz. Alexander Tiederbaim, who grew, grows up in Zamush in Poland, but he's for a while in Odessa. Later he moves to St. Petersburg, which are two of those were the big centers, and he's he is the newspaper. Um, Hashachar, Peretz Smolenskin, which is published in Vienna. Hamagid, which is another one that lasted for a long, and many, many, many more newspapers. Then you have those are all Hebrew newspapers, and you later have the Yiddish newspapers. You also have the writings. There's satire, which was is mostly famously identified with one of the most legendary masculum of all time, Yosef Perel, who I'll get to. He's lived in Tarnopol in in Galicia, and he 
wrote his, he, he, he spent his, dedicated his entire life to Haskalah. And we also know a lot about him because he's one of the only, uh, Maskilim who their archive has been complete, almost completely preserved and is, is, is available in Israel. It's accessible. So we know a lot about him, uh, unlike many of the other Maskilim. Um, and he, he, among his many other things, uh, what he does, but one of the things he was most noted for was his long, never-ending battle against the Hasidic movement. It was, he, was, he was the bitter enemy, the foe of the Hasidic movement in the ni- early 19th century, especially in the area of Galicia and the Ukraine. And he, never-ending, relentless, and it's through every way, and he goes to the government and his writings and and he's 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 there. He's en- enemy number one um, of the Hasidic movement, and vice versa. It was a mutual uh, dislike for for each other. And what his most famous work was the what he wrote, the Megala Tamirin, which was a satire against the Hasidic movement. And he wrote many such. He he mas- master of the satire, and he he pioneered the whole genre. Many of the Haskal literature, which was written very often targeting the Hasidic movement and writing against it was satire. And it became a form of, of writing, of humor, of, of, of a way of getting a message out in a, in a, in, in, in a polemical way. Um, but there was also novels. You had in Kovna, Avram Mapu, who wrote the first Hebrew novel, Shivas Tzion, The Return to Zion. Uh, later on in the century of Yiddish writing and Yiddish literature and, and books and novels and short stories. Uh, one can definitely safely assert that more than anything else, it was the pen that was the primary tool of the Haskalah and the Maskilim, and that the only way we can see the Haskalah movement as somewhat of a movement is, is, is through this unifying feature. Um, because it's hard to call it a movement. It, it, it did not have a unified platform. Um, they, Maskilim were in touch with each other. They corresponded with each other, but they did not have courts. They did not have mass movements. Some of them had schools. Yosef Perel had a school in Tarnopol, so there was education. There was influence, um, but not on a mass scale. So what made it a movement? And, and it's, it's, it's really a difficult question to answer. How do we, how do we define it? How do we crystallize that? There was different uh, forms of it. Like I said, within this supposed movement, there's the Hebrew Haskalah and then the Russian Haskalah. The Hebrew Haskalah was more traditionalist. They wanted to create new Hebrew and Jewish culture within the Jewish community. And the Russian Haskalah was more assimilationist. It was more to get acculturated within Russian society. And, and they debated with each other. A lot of polemics among the Maskilim, what was the correct approach? And it was a facing modernity. Ascala was facing a changing world, changing governments, and and uh, changing Jewish society and technology and all the things going around them. And there was a reaction to that, that we have to improve the Jewish people. We have to have educational reform. We have to be more productive economically. Um, economic productivity was one of the highest on the agenda of the Maskilim. It's going to get rid of anti-Semitism. It's going to get rid of the Jewish economic woes. It's going to get rid of the way the government looks at us with askance. It's going to grant us emancipation because we're going to become more productive. Um, and this brings us to the idea of uh, of the uh, relationship that the Haskalah has with the governments. They see for very often the government as an ally, especially in the 1830s and 40s when there's 
what's known in Jewish history as the Haskalah Mita'am. And the Haskalah Mita'am means that the Russian government is trying to uh, implement certain reform within the Jewish community, and they are partners at that point in history with the with the Maskilim, and uh, and and they try to implement educational reform. And we know that that's when the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe of Lubavitch, and and Rebbe Alajin and other activists within the Jewish community of Russia um, very much fought against that. And and that's you know a lot a lot of the stuff of legend of 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 uh, of, of many stories and it's a very uh, part of history of resisting this change because the the goals of the Haskalah were not always so clear. They, they, very often they wanted educational reform. Uh, they also wanted community structure reform, like I said, economic change, cultural change, exposure to the outside world. They should learn the language of the country, which is speak a refined Russian. German, wherever the country was, you know, the one of the most uh, controversial changes in West in the Western Europe, uh, Haskell of the century prior, was that the rabbi should switch the language of his speeches in the synagogue in the shul to the vernacular of the country. So in Germany, if the rabbi would speak German, that's a maskil. In 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 uh, in Austria, also German, or if it was in Hungary, to to Hungarian, and later on. To, to Russian or Polish in Eastern Europe. You know, t- today, if, if, if your rabbi in your shul speaks in English or in modern Hebrew in Israel, so then uh, 200 years ago, that, that, w- that would have been considered a, an expression of Haskalah. Uh, that, and it would have been considered a progressive shul. The progressive shuls were an expression of Haskalah. The first progressive uh, shul in Eastern Europe was in Odessa. The second one, believe it or not, was in Vilna, the choral synagogue that is the only existing shul, an active shul with three minyanim a day in Vilna that I always bring the groups to whenever we go to Vilna, is, was the choral synagogue. That was the uh, progressive maskil <laughs> shul in, uh, before the war. But now it's the only orthodox and only existing uh, shul in, in, in Vilna from pre-war times. Um, they, they emphasize Haskalah, one of the uh, the goals was literature, to expose to outside knowledge, productivity, to be better citizens, to be part of the country that they're in. And there's, and there's different levels. There's the moderate Haskalah, that they don't want big changes, just slight improvements. And then there was the radical Haskalah, that their changes went so far that they said that we need to change the Jewish religion. We need to improve the Jewish religion. We need to fix the halacha. We need to fix tradition. That was already the radical Haskalah. That was and some of the moderate maskilim were very opposed to that. You're just going to cause opposition by the traditional Jewish masses, by the traditional Jewish rabbinate. We don't need to fix the Jewish religion, but the radical maskilim said, no, we need to fix everything, and we need to change and improve the halacha system, and Talmudic law. And, uh, and then already it was, it was similar to some of the expressions of, of 19th, of much earlier, of the 18th century, 19th century, a German uh, uh, a Jewish community of, of reform and of Askel, but uh, it didn't exactly take on that form at all in, in Eastern Europe. There was a very interesting organization called the Chevra Mefitze Haskala or Marbe Haskala, the organization to spread Haskala. It was in, based in St. Petersburg, and its patrons were the Gunsbergs, Baron Horatze Gunsberg, who was the richest and wealthiest Jew in, in Russia to 
and the, the purpose of this uh, this organization was to spread enlightenment, knowledge, science uh, among the Jews of Russia. One of the most famous maskilim uh, in Russia, Yalag, Yehuda Leib Gordon, uh, who started off in Tells, actually, and eventually made it to St. Petersburg. So he headed the Chevra uh, Mefitzi Haskalah for a while. Uh, he wrote poetry. His, his famous saying in one of his poems came to define, to a certain extent, that period of time. To be a Jew at home, be a Jew at home, and Adam uh, and be a mensch, an Adam, a human being outside. Be part of the world, be part of society. Keep your Judaism a private affair. Uh, the Chevra Mefitze Haskala was originally uh, Hebrew, uh, originally Hebrew Haskala, and then it shifted towards Russian. And an intellectual elite developed in St. Petersburg and was funded by lots of Jewish wealth and it tended towards acculturation and even towards assimilation. And it was at odds with the more Jewish or the more moderate Haskell that existed at the time as well. So it's important to understand that there were different shades of the, of the Haskalah within this, this loosely connected movement, as I mentioned, that it wasn't a uniform with uh, adherence, with a cohesive agenda. Um, and I'll give you an example. Leon Pinsker, who was a member of the Chevra Mefitzi Haskalah for a while, but as things got worse for Russian Jewry under the Romanovs, he said that the Chevra Mefitzi Haskalah in St. Petersburg are living in an ivory tower. They're not dealing with the problems, the daily problems of the people. They have to deal with the problems of the Jewish people, not to try to enlighten them. You have to try to do something for them. See, he leaves in disgust. And what is his solution? Nationalism. We're going to solve the Jewish problem by becoming a people. Auto-emancipation. He writes the pamphlet, Auto-emancipation. We're going to emancipate ourselves. And most members of this, this organization were in St. Petersburg, but there was also membership in Odessa and other places. Um, there was Haskalah schools, I mentioned. There was rabbinical schools. That was part of the Haskalah Mitam. The Russian government set it up in the 1840s. There was two rabbinical schools of the Haskalah in uh, in Vilna and in Zhitomir. And Rabbi Sol Salanter was involved in, was, was involved in the dispute with the Vilna one. They tried to recruit him to join the Vilna Rabbinical Seminary. He had to leave Vilna. That's when he moved to Covenant in 1849. Um, but that was, that was a part of the Haskalah as well. Uh, and, uh, and the long lasting battle of the Haskalah throughout the 19th century was primarily, um, against the Hasidic movement, who they saw as a religious reactionary movement that is opposed to the values of the Haskalah, and therefore they need to uh, battle it. And it was done through writings, through satire, like I mentioned. There were quite a few famous personalities of this movement, and each one that makes it more colorful. Each one is a nice story. So perhaps uh, there will be episodes devoted to the different members. The German Haskalah had Mendelssohn himself, which I already touched on in an episode, and Naftali Hertzwiesel, Shlomo Dubno, you had the Galizia Skull, you had Shlomo Yehuda, Rap- Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, uh, Shir, he was known as, uh, Ribal, uh, Yosef Perel, like I mentioned, Achman Krochmal, and later on in Russia, you had uh, Shmuel Yosef Finn in Vilna, Yalag, Yudleib Gordon, Moshleib Lillianblum, who came from Vilkomir originally in Lithuania, Adam Akoin, who is in, in Vilna, and many more uh, uh, of the Lithuanian and Russian Maskilim also, each one is a whole, a whole personality, a whole story, and we'll have to devote an episode to the personalities of Askel, and especially a very interesting story 
would be the early maskilim. Like going back to the story I started off with. Does a maskil mean a secular Jew? Does a maskil mean someone who does not keep Shabbos? No. Maskil means open to ideas of of the outside world and trying to implement certain improvements or fix certain things that, from their perspective, obviously, I'm not justifying or condoning any of this, This obviously. So some of the early maskilim were observant. They, they, they were observant. They kept Shabbos. They put on tefillin. They were, looked religious, like religious Jews. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with those personalities? And, you know, there's all different ones. Like I mentioned, Shlomo Dubna is one. Mitzchistanum. Um, Mendel Leffen is probably the most exciting story. And Mendel Leffen is, 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 is such an interesting story um, about this, this maskil who is in between two worlds that it will definitely need its own episode. And again, if you want to sponsor one of these, be in touch with me. So this is Yehudi Gabber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigabber.com for questions, comments, uh, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. Uh, You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter, J Soundbites, and I hope you enjoy.